Good morning. Today we'll be reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 12 to 31. Um, you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 600. Isaiah 40, chapter, chapter 40, verses 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above in the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings pieces, princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? What, what that I shall be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Trinity. Sorry, I'm fumbling with magnets. <clears throat> so Isaiah 40, we haven't been studying it. Uh, it's almost the heart and center of the book of Isaiah. Uh, so this morning we're going to consider uh, Isaiah's ancient words that he preached once upon a time to 
uh, God's people in a certain unique season of their lives. And uh, the first 39 chapters, Isaiah has a bit of a harsher word. And, and chapter 40, uh, there's, there's a dimly lit light that begins to brighten in this book. So we're dropping in and, and, and a bit of a turning point of the book of Isaiah. Um, J.I. Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, comments on this very text that we're considering together this morning. Uh, and here's, here's an inter- interesting observation that Packer makes related to the core question of our text. Verse 18 is the, is the heart of Isaiah's original sermon. Verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare to him? The, question, the, the core question of the text is, who compares to our great God? Here's what Packer has to say about this comment. Packer writes, quote, This question rebukes wrong thoughts about God. This is where most of us go astray. Our thoughts of God are not great enough. Because we ourselves are limited and weak, we imagine that at some points God must be too. And we find it hard to believe that he's not simply like us. So in other words, Packer is arguing here that the core problem that you face today is that you think God is weak, just like you're weak, and that, his, and that, that, that small thought needs some correction. Packer goes on to say, uh, here's the anecdote for small thoughts of God. He says, uh, in order to form a right idea, we need to form a right idea of God's greatness. Quote, he says, we must remove our thoughts of, from our thoughts of God the limits that would make him small. So in other words, uh, Packer's triaging and saying that small thoughts of God leads to small trust in God. That's Packer's point. And I think that's part of the point Isaiah is making in our text this morning. So here's the question for us to consider. How do we remove small thoughts of our great God? The, The text answers this question for us. Verses 12 through 26 focus chiefly on repairing our small thoughts of God by four comparisons. So Isaiah uses four comparisons. He compares uh, God and his unique par excellence characteristics compared to us and his creation. And, and through these four comparisons, Isaiah originally wants his original hearers and, and I would like us today to catch on to this big idea. Here's what I think Isaiah's main point is. God is great, so you can trust him greatly. I think this was Isaiah's point to the original hearers, and I want to make it our point to us this morning. God is great, so you can trust him greatly. And my prayer is that as we go through these four comparisons, you would see this truth unfold. So let's consider the first comparison that showcases to us that God is great. So comparison number one, first, God is great in his capability. Capability. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? And who has marked off the heavens with a span? And closed the dust dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. The, the obvious answer to this rhetorical question, who's, who's done these things? Who's capable of these things? Uh, in verse 12, the answer is none. No one, of course, no one is able to, to do this. No one's able to measure 
the oceans in the palm of their hand. No one's been able to mark off the heavens with a span, which uh, the span is the, the measurement between your thumb and your pinky finger. Uh, that was sort of the ancient form of measurement before the metric system. Uh, that's what a span is. Who's, who's been able to measure the heavens with this span? No one also has collected the dust of the earth or, or put rocks and mountains on scales, kind of like a kid would manipulate Play-Doh. None of us have done this with the Grand Canyons or the Rockies. But verse 12 depicts God as a cosmic creator, measuring, marking, enclosing, and weighing his creation, like a cosmic architect. God here is being showcased as incomparably great in his capabilities. For only he can actually hold creation in his hand. Uh, Take yourself by comparison. What are you capable of holding in your hands or measuring uh, with the span of your hand? What are you capable of? Um, I don't know, a water bottle. Some of you brought water bottles this morning. You're capable of controlling and holding a water bottle. Impressive. A pen. You measure a pen with your hand. Some of you have iPhones. You could probably... With your pinky and your thumb, measure the, the span of your iPhone. Unless you have an iPhone Plus, then, then that, that might be a bit harder. But think about the limits of your own capabilities. You are far from the capability of our great God. In other words, man's creative capacity, capabilities are infinitely small in comparison to God's infinite capabilities. So church... First, recognize this morning that God is your cosmic creator. He's in a class of his own, par excellence. He's, he's matchless, unrivaled, beyond even comparison. He's the one that can measure and mark and enclose the heavens and the earth because he's the creator of it all. However, you are prone to, to think small, itty-bitty thoughts of this great God. To think that God is only capable of, of what you are capable of doing yourself. And in times of despair and hardship, trials and tribulation, you're extra vulnerable to thinking small thoughts of your great God. You're vulnerable to make the mistake that God's creative capabilities are as creative as, to the the same degree as your creative capabilities. So for example, um, I've seen some of you juggle grocery bags. Some of you, impressively, can carry four at a time. And that takes some, some coordination, some strength, some might. I've seen some of you, uh, I'm thinking about my wife in particular, uh, she might have uh, a baby carrier in one arm, four groceries in the other, and she's trekking up uh, to, the, to the door of our house after a grocery run. Impressive capabilities there. But listen, church, if God is only a four-grocery bag God for you, when the heat of life turns up, it's not going to be enough. That's the point, Isaiah is making first here in our text. So in summary, God is great first in his capability, which is good news to you because it means that you don't have to be a do-it-all. God is great, not only in his capability, but second, God is great in his counsel. His counsel. Picking up at verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? 
Who taught him, God, the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Again, the answer is no one has instructed God in this measure. Just like in verse 12, the rhetorical question here is who? And the, the obvious answer is no one. No one compares. You may have noticed that as, as Melody read verses 12 through 26, the key question is who? It's actually repeated 12 times in just 15 short verses. And each time the answer is a resounding no one. The answer to the who is no one but God compares like this. So over and against the counterfeit gods of Isaiah's time, God had no counselors. So here's something that the original hearers would have been struck by. Uh, In Babylonian mythology, one commentator notes that the creator god Murdoch, which would have been a competing narrative to who God is at, at this time of Israel, the, the creator god, quote, Marduk, could not create without first consulting I, who was known as the, the wise one. But the Lord works with unaided wisdom, end quote. Trinity, God is great in his counsel, and he needs no schoolmaster or schoolteacher. For no one has ever taught or showed God anything. Who's ever showed him the ropes of life? Uh, For most of us in this room, you'll spend the first 18 years of your life, if you're in an American education system, the the first 18 years of your life will revolve around the primary vocation of being a student. Some of you are in the midst of that, little kiddos. You're in the midst of being a student, and it's likely charted out for you the next, the first 18 years of life, your primary vocation will be school. Some of you have already graduated high school and Move on to, moved on to other things. But for the first 18 years of your life, you're likely spending most of your working week reading, writing, speaking, learning the ABCs, history, science, math, art, learning about cause and effect, learning about parts of the cell, mitochondria, mitochondria, the nucleus, cytoplasm, I think, is on there. That's the thing, right? Ribosomes. Some of you have forgotten lots of this hard work like me, uh, as you've learned. But that was your primary vocation, is to study these things. Now let me ask you this. What school has God ever enrolled in? What university has ever conferred onto our great God a degree? He has no school. He has no school teacher. He has no degrees to earn. That's how great he is. He's incomparably great in his counsel. You can trust God greatly because unlike anyone, he's never been to school. That's a trustworthy man. He's never needed to learn the differences between diameter and circumference. He's never needed to be quizzed on identifying the the 50 states. He never needed to learn the alphabet or that velocity is displacement over time. Rather, he's created all of the realities behind your curiosities. And unlike Babylonian mythology, and unlike you and me, God has never consulted anyone for his counsel. So in times of despair, you are prone, it's normal and natural to crave counsel. I mean, think about the the medical industry. Uh, Think about how tempting it is to despair when you meet dead ends of knowledge. It's difficult. For example, like when the doctor tells you, 
Ah, sorry, Greg. Uh, I actually haven't seen this one before. What are you going to want to do? You're going to want a second opinion. You're going to want more counsel. In times of despair, you will crave more and more and more counsel. This is natural. And this is normal. But the good news to you who are craving counsel this morning is that God is great in his counsel. He has no ends. You don't need a second opinion. You need no referral because you can stop with him. He is the great counselor. So you don't have to be a do-it-all because God is capable of all. But you also don't have to be a know-it-all because your great God is great in his counsel. So this is good news to you this morning. If you find yourself hungry to find great counsel for all the questions that you have, look no further than your great God. God is great first in his capability, according to our text. Second, he's great in his counsel, so you can trust him greatly. Third, God is great in his control. His control. Look with me again at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. Friends, verses 15 to 17 here are highlighting the insignificant control of the nations, human power and control on earth. And, and, and Isaiah here is comparing man's control uh, with God's great control in verse 17. So the nations, or you can think of these as the powers at be outside of God's family on earth are significant in two ways, according to Isaiah here. First, the nations are insignificant in their size. Insignificant in size. Verse 15, Isaiah is comparing the nations, the powers at be on, on earth, as a drop in a bucket. A drop in a bucket. Uh, now let me ask you this. When you were filling up your water bottles in your sink faucet this morning, before coming here, how many of you were disturbed by that tiny little drip of water that you missed? Or last night when you were filling up your water before bed, how many of you lost sleep over that little, that little drip you didn't quite get in? your water bottle. You probably didn't lose sleep over it. You're probably such, in such a hurry this morning that you probably didn't think twice because just, you just had to get here. It's, you didn't lose sleep over it and you didn't think twice about it because of its insignificant size. That's the comparison being made here. The nations are like that drop that you missed. You didn't think twice about it. They're that puny, that insignificant. The nations are like that insignificant small drop of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen that you missed this morning. It didn't really bother you. You didn't think twice about it. So it is when you compare God to the nations on earth and their control. So Isaiah's point is clear. Compared to God's control, worldly powers are puny, pitiful, and to him just a drop, like insignificantly nothing in comparison. 
But not only are they insignificant in their size, they're also insignificant in their sovereignty. Look with me at verse 22. Verse 22 of Isaiah 40. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Here God is being depicted as the one who sits above the universe, sitting above all humanity. Verse 22. He is matchless in his control. He sets the course of history, and that is always what comes to pass. He can bring princes to nothing. Verse 23. This means that for you and for me and all of creation, we are ultimately subject to God's great control. And you are ultimately not subject to man's control. Notice he likens all the inhabitants of the earth to be like grasshoppers. What an interesting phrase grasshoppers. Isaiah was telling his original audience, and and I'm reflecting that in this today, to say to you, you church are like grasshoppers. You know, those little tiny insects that sort of bounce around thinking they're, you know, kind of hot shots uh, in this life, when in reality God can can control it. He's he's bigger than us. He can do as he pleases. Uh, We're just kind of these puny little hoppers in comparison to his greatness. Some of you feel extra grasshoppery this morning. You feel extra puny, small, tired, weary from trials, tribulations, you name it. Some of you feel extra grasshoppery this morning. Now here's my, here's my warning and I think the caution of this text. Don't confuse your grasshopperiness with thinking that God is a grasshopper, then you're in trouble. So the, the, the text rightly and appropriately calibrates us to make sure that we don't think too much of ourselves, reminding us that we're just, we're just grasshoppers compared to God. But we get in the most trouble in the midst of our grasshopperiness to think that God is the grasshopper too and not the creator of the grasshopper. I think this is Isaiah's point here in this text. You are prone to think small thoughts about God's control, especially when you feel extra small like a grasshopper. You're prone to think that God is only capable of controlling what you're capable of controlling. And if that's true, we're all in trouble. But the good news of the text is that that is not true because God is great in his control. If you were to believe this today, if you were to believe that God is great in his control, Think about what, what difference that would make in your life. Here's what, I, here's what I think would happen. I think you would fear man less, and you would trust God more. I think I would fear man less and trust God more if I recognize the greatness of God's control that Isaiah is preaching about here in this text. If, if you were to take this truth seriously, you wouldn't work so hard to be a control at all in every aspect of your life as well. You wouldn't work so hard to be a perfectionist at home or, or at school or whatever your vocation and workplace might be or in ministry because you'd see yourself simply as a grasshopper at the mercy of the one who sits on the cosmic throne. And you'd, you'd, it'd be a delight to you. It'd be a help to you. 
God is great in his control, Trinity. Hear this today, which is good news because it means that you don't have to be a control at all. God's, God controls everything on heaven. All the happenings in heaven right now, God's in control of it. All the happenings on earth right now, God's in control of it. So God is great in his control. This is the third comparison. So, so far, I've said that we've seen that God is great in his capability, his counsel, and his control. Those are the first three comparisons. But actually, this last one is most important of them all. It makes sense. It makes all the difference of of these first three for you and for me. So here's the fourth and final point. God is great in his care. His care. Here's the dilemma we face. If you're struggling to believe that God cares for you, these first three things don't even matter. Like, like, like a firefighter in, the, in our township just down the road, like at the firehouse, they might be capable of putting out a fire. They might be wise enough, how to, they, they might know the know-how, how to put out a fire. And they might have the, the control, the ability to coordinate putting out fires. But how would you feel if that firehouse didn't care to dispatch to your fire? then those first three characteristics wouldn't actually be very relevant. So this is the trump card of characteristics for us this morning that Isaiah is putting before us. God is great in his care. Since you're prone to have a small view of God's care, you might end up sounding like Israel did in verse 27. We read, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord. This is coming from a a people who think God isn't caring and questioning where is God. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by God. One commentator, commentating on verse 27, says that this is the perennial question of those who suffer. And I agree. He says the perennial question of sufferers is this. Why doesn't God take action to right this situation that I'm in? And this question remains with us today. So say you believe God is great in his capability, his counsel, and his control, but he doesn't desire to use this greatness for your good, then is he really worthy of your trust? That's the big question. Because in great despair, you will question God's care. But is it, is it really God who is disregarding you? Or actually, do we have it kind of backwards? Is it you who are prone to disregard God in the mix of difficulties? Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not, grow, does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Look at this. Look at this good news. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint. There's his care. There it is. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases their strength. God cares. Verse 30. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted. 
But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. Trinity, you can trust God greatly because the everlasting creator of verse 28 cares about you who are weary and faint-hearted. Verse 29. Don't forget this. God offers you his greatness for the good of his people. He's not a stingy giver. He is great in his care, which means that you don't have to be a care at all. So there's the four comparisons. And the main question that Isaiah has been asking is, who compares, who compares, who compares? We've asked it four times. Who can compare to God in his capability, his counsel, his control, and forth, his care? And the answer, of course, up until this point has been no one. No one but God. None. But of course, there is one who compares. None can compare to this description of greatness. But Jesus, we see all four of these attributes in the nature of your Lord and Savior. So ultimately, church, (laughs) the point of the sermon this morning is that you can trust Jesus because Jesus is great, so you can trust him greatly. Colossians 1, Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. All four of these characteristics lives in bodily form in Christ. Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. So who is it that has the capability to, to make all these things that are described for us in verses 12 through 13? It's Jesus. Think about how John describes Jesus in his opening chapter. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. Think about it, church. Who is it that heals the sick, who's capable of making the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the dead rise back to life? Who is it that's capable of these things? Who is it that casts out demons and walks on water and speaks to a storming sea and it ceases, it obeys his voice? Jesus. So it's Jesus who is great in his capability. So you can trust all your creaturely cares to Christ. What about counsel? Who is it that teaches in such a way that we see in the Gospels, it leaves the religious elite of his day stupefied? and dumbfounded in their shoes. It's Jesus, Mark 1, 22. Who is it that the apostle Paul calls the wisdom of God? Who is it that teaches that the kingdom is at hand and that he can forgive sins in Mark 2? It's Jesus. Jesus is great in his counsel. So you can trust all your counseling cares to Jesus. What about control? Who is it that sits above the circle of the earth, as Isaiah describes it? Who is it that judges the living and the dead, 2 Timothy 4? Who is it that sits at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 1, 3? Who is it that brings princes to nothing, Colossians 1 and 2? It's Jesus, 
Colossians 1.16, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and through him. Through him and for him. Colossians 2.10, Christ is the head of every power and authority. Colossians 2.15, It is Jesus who disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through his cross. So who, I ask, who is the one who is great in their capability, counsel, control? It's Jesus. Trinity, it's Jesus. Jesus is great, so you can trust Jesus greatly. But what about his care? Jesus also is great in his care. No one has ever been as caring as Jesus. Who is it that came to seek and save the lost when he had no needs himself? Luke 19.10. Who is it that perfectly loved God and loved his neighbor? Who is it, who's the one who looks out at the sheep of the, the pasture and has compassion on those who are harassed? Who is it? It's Jesus. Trinity, who is the one who sought you in his coming, who bought you in his blood and has brought you into the family of God? It's Jesus your Savior. He is the great caring one. Jesus came not to, ser- not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So you can trust Jesus. If you trust in Christ then his, and his perfect life lived in your place, this will not only free you from small thoughts of God, but it also has the power to cancel debt, the worst debt of all, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus cancels that for you if you trust him. So why trust Jesus this morning, church? Trust him because he cares for you. He cares for you so much that he died for you. Jesus' great care is displayed in his death for sinners. So you can trust Jesus greatly. Trinity, you can trust him when you're anxious You can trust Jesus when you're afraid. You can trust him when you're angry, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling lonely, when you're sick, when you're feeling confused. You can trust in Jesus. You can trust him when you're despairing. Trinity, you can trust Jesus because he is great in his care. What might this trust look like for you this week? How do we do this? My suggestion I'd put forth this week to trust Jesus greatly is to remember these four attributes of his care. Friends, remember, consider this week how if you trust Jesus, you can trust him that he is the great one with full great capability, counsel, control, and most importantly, care. Which is good news to you because this week you won't have to wear yourself thin trying to be a know-it-all or a do-it-all or a control it all, or a care it all. You won't have to wear yourself thin. Rather, if you trust and remember that Jesus is the one who is greatly capable, has great counsel, great control, great care, you'll be like the ones in verse 31. This will be the story of your week this week. You'll be like the ones who soar like, great, like a great eagle, like ones who run and never grow t- tired, who walk and never faint. Trinity. Jesus is great. 
so you can trust Jesus greatly this week.